And just like that, it's 2021 and Exploring Boys Education is back. My name is Bruce Collins and it's a real privilege for me to be your host. In this, our first episode of the new year, we connect with author and scholar Andrew Reiner. His new book, Better Boys, Better Men, explores the new masculinity that creates greater courage and emotional resiliency. Better Boys, Better Men is a thought-provoking and much-needed look at how modern masculinity is harming and holding back men and all of society and what we can do to promote a new masculinity that allows men of all ages to thrive. Truth is, I'm really excited for you to listen to my interview with Andrew, but before we grapple with masculinity and his thoughts about the subject, I've asked my colleague Amy Ahart to join me again for the IBSC Newsreel. Happy New Year, Amy. It's great to be talking again about what we have coming up for IBSC members. Happy New Year to you, Bruce, and hello, listeners. There are so many programs coming up, but I'd like to highlight our February offerings. We have four online classes starting on February 8th, Teachers New to Boys Schools, Boys and Belonging, and two new classes, The Tech Solution with Shimmy Kang, and a class based on Ada Sinecor's research into responsible sexual citizenship. Sign up for one of these classes soon on IBSC's website. Then, Bruce, our third Parenting Boys Speaker Series goes live on February 2nd. Dr. Derek Gay will be sharing about cultivating empathy and inclusion in boys. The keynote and platform will be available for three days to interact with participants on our IBSC Shorts discussion board. Amy, we also have two professional development opportunities for senior leaders in boys' schools starting in February, don't we? Yes, Bruce. These are programs specifically designed for deputy heads, division heads, and other senior leaders who aspire to headship in boys' schools. The first is an IBSC Ideas Lab for senior leaders of boys' schools. Second is our first virtual regional conference. We're partnering with Rick Melvoin, Vance Wilson, and the Boys Latin School of Maryland for an event called IBSC Behind the Curtain, Rewards and Challenges of Headship, an online program for school leaders and aspiring heads in North America. Thanks, Amy. So many opportunities to learn and grow at the start of this year. Again, more information for all of these programs can be found on our website. So head to www.theibsc.org and sign up today. Our guest today, Andrew Reiner, is a professor at Towson University, where he offers the seminar Changing Face of Masculinity. He has written on masculinity and men's issues for the New York Times, Italy's La Repubblica, and the Washington Post magazine. And his work has been featured on NPR and the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and in The Guardian, Men's Health magazine, and Forbes. He speaks about masculinity regularly at schools and conferences, nationally in the US and internationally. Many of you might remember Andrew from his presentation at the 2017 IBSC Annual Conference hosted by the Boys Latin School of Maryland in Baltimore. Andrew, it really feels like you're a friend of IBSC already, having spoken at our conference in 2017, but also you visited a number of IBSC schools in Australia. So welcome to Exploring Boys Education and thanks for joining us. 
It's wonderful to be here. It it really is, Bruce. Thank you. It's it's an honor. I'm I'm just you know ever since I got involved when I, you know, was was fortunate enough to be invited to give that talk. I've just really been um, just just a huge huge supporter of IBSC and and, and the mission. As we kick off our conversation, Andrew, I'd love to focus on the why. I'm a big fan of the why, and I think it's important to understand why you wrote Better Boys, Better Men. The why, the why for me is kind of three-pronged. Um, you know, it began very, very early in my childhood. Um, uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where, um, you know, if and when, you know, my friends and I, other boys got into little fights, little fist fights. They were not very common and they were short and they were not bloody and they were, they were, they were pretty tame. Um, and, and we always ended up just making up afterwards, but there was this one fist fight that I was a part of that happened when I was about seven or eight and it was just downright brutal. And it, it, it was in fact so atypical of our neighborhood that within about 15 or 20 minutes, the entire neighborhood of kids was out there just watching. And I remember, you know, there are certain things, things when you go through tra traumatic experiences, you often remember little details. And one of the things I remember, because at, at some point in the fight, I was actually asking for help, was looking at just these mouths agape, because we'd never had a fight like this in our neighborhood. And this, this boy that I was fighting, um, same age, was just was just pummeling me. And there was just, you know, at some point he had even said, you know, get down on your knees and beg for mercy, which I didn't do. And then eventually I did. And he just kept pummeling me. And at some point I ran away just to get away because it was just, it was just, it was barbaric after a while. I mean, I was just completely bloodied. And he came after me and caught me and, and kept pummeling me. So there was that. But really the biggest part of it beyond that, the trauma of that fight was that I go home later that day. And of course, you know, all the kids had gone home and just, I'm sure told the story to their own families. And I come in through the back door and I come in quietly and I hear my oldest brother screaming at my mother saying what a black sheep and what a coward I was. I, I had come home expecting, you know, stucker, um, emotional support, my brothers, I had two older brothers, you know, standing up for me, figuring out some way that they would, you know, that they would, you know, right this wrong. And he's screaming about what, an, what a black sheep and what an embarrassment I am to the family. And so I ended up going from there, basically trying to fight my way out of shame, the shame of that moment. And that went on for probably a good four or five years as a, as a boy, as a young boy. I just, you know, was constantly looking for opportunities to just fight my way out of my shame. And at some point I was in about, um, I was about 11 years old, maybe 12 at the most. Um, I just remember being in a fight and just something just, just triggered in me. And I just said, you know, I just, I don't like the feel or the sound of my fist against a bone or, you know, the thud in somebody else's flesh. And every, it just kind of stopped after that. It just, everything just changed. And um, what started happening for me after that was that in the vacuum, you know, with my fists unclenched, my hands down by my side from now on, you know, literally and figuratively, I, in that vacuum, I started becoming aware of the way that, that boys, 
you know, basically, I wasn't aware that I was fighting out of shame, but I was very much aware of how cruel the, you know, the way that boys treat each other can be in the smallest ways going on up the scale. And so that became something I became very much aware of. And so I kind of was very much like my oldest brother. I was uh, very sensitive. I was a very big feeler. I was very intense. But I decided that I was going to go with the same ferocity in the opposite direction of him. And I was going to push back. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. But I just knew that I wanted to fight against what he was about. And so at a very, you know, in early adolescence, I was just kind of paying attention to and finding ways to push back against this narrow, this very narrow masculine script. And so, um, you know, that happened really, you know, I remember, you know, there were lots of ways I was doing that. Some productive, some very unproductive, you know, sometimes I would buy into that very kind of, um, that very limiting script, you know, one of the things I would do when I was in college, I remember was that I would, there were guys who, you know, whenever you're at a party who are always kind of embarrassing and shaming other guys to drink more and that, you know, and that they're less masculine if they can't hold their liquor. And so I was always in the States, what we call a lightweight, you know, I could never handle much. Um, I enjoy having some drinks, but I, I couldn't handle more than a few. And so I was always kind of the one you know, stepping in and trying to challenge those kinds of guys, of course, with disastrous effects for me beyond that. So, but, you know, there were some productive and unproductive ways as I was trying to figure this out. Um, and then, so fast forward, um, I am, uh, I, I, the university where I teach, um, we have an honors college where I, I teach part of the time. And the dean had said, you know, are there any, I'm desperately looking for new kinds of courses. Are there any course ideas you have? So I created one that called The Changing Face of Masculinity. And that was probably about maybe eight years ago. Um, no, it was probably longer. It was about 10 years ago. And so when I created that, I, I knew that I wanted to show a different side to the masculine, you know, to masculinity. I, want, I definitely wanted to push back against that you know, the traditional or normative masculine script. And one of the things that kept coming up, and I wasn't even consciously aware of it at the time, but one of the students that I had a very good rapport with said to me, you keep kind of really pushing this vulnerability thing, you know, about men being more, you know, more sensitive, more emotionally, now I call it emotionally honest or authentic. And I said, yeah, I guess you're right, you know? And, and I was still in the process of trying to figure out um, I mean, I knew why, but I wasn't exactly sure where the, I really felt like the course needed to go. And then my son was born. This is prong number three. My son was born. And, and so when my son was born, suddenly a lot shifted in me because what had always been my own little, little personal crusade now suddenly was very different because I had a boy. And I had so many ambivalent feelings about having a son. You know, on the one hand, it was, you know, phenomenal to, to suddenly become a father. On the other hand, there was all that baggage and all of the animus I felt and frustration and contempt for so much about masculinity. And so I had to really, there was a, it was a big reckoning inside of me in terms of what is this going to mean? Because I also didn't want to impose, 
you know, my own, my own crusade on this little boy and make him miserable. And so it became a real reckoning for me in terms of figuring out what did this mean? And so once I started figuring out wh who I wanted to try to be as a father, it helped me figure out really what I felt like was really the root of what I was teaching in this Changing Face of Masculinity course. And what it all came back to was that really at the core of all of this is that there needs to be emotional honesty. There needs to be more emotional authenticity to give boys and men the access to the full spectrum of their, of their emotions and feelings, which really is the full spectrum of their humanity. Andrew, I'd like to start with digging a little deeper into the fact that masculinity is really under the spotlight in modern times and probably for good reason. But what really struck me as I was reading your book was those two middle school boys who were wrestling with the question of where do I fit in? And I think you found in your travels that boys' schools everywhere are grappling with this exact question for their boys. Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking that one, Bruce, because that, that really, I think, for so many boys out there is really is very defining, even though they don't realize it's defining. I think that, um, you know, this generation of boys, um, whether they embrace it or not, and I think a lot of them, a lot of them do, really have been raised um, with a much greater awareness um, about about, you know, the, the fourth wave of feminism, about, you know, well, th not that they would call it that, but about, you know, feminism and where feminism has, has grown now. And, and a lot of them are aware of it, and a lot of them are sensitive um, to the movement and to, you know, the changes that need to occur for girls and women. Um, and that said, there also is, um, there are a lot of questions and there, and there are degrees of um, confusion and even rejection that these boys feel. The thing of it is, is that when you're a boy, and my, I've actually have had conversations about this with my son when, when he has been out and, and there's been um, girls wearing t-shirts that say things like, as I do in the book, you know, the, the, you know, the future is female. Um, or my, my son has shared with me, uh, you know, girls have worn shirts to his school that say things like girls rule, boys drool. You know, as harmless to a lot of us who are older that might see those shirts is that, you know, if you try to put yourself in that place, you know, developmentally, messages like that hurt. Messages like that send a very, a, a message flat out of, of less than, of rejection based on simply who and what you are. And so, you know, we, we can't look at that through the, you know, through the eyes of an adult, you know, we have to try to imagine what that must feel like for boys. And so there really, there, there is a lot of that. Um, we had gone to a play called Neverland, which is kind of a, um, a resurrected um, play about the Peter Pan story. Um, and it's told um, very much um, through a very feminist-friendly kind of perspective. And I think there's a lot of fantastic messages in this play. There really, truly are. But there were some moments in the play where the characters were, were, were really denigrating, out, outwardly denigrating boys. And at the end of it, we were, at the end of it, the lights came up in the theater. And my son had said, well, I said, so what did you think? And he said, well, I liked it. But he said, I, I was really confused as to why they kept saying that 
you know, boys were so stupid and boys were dumb. And they, they, he, he said they just kept saying that over and over. And there was a woman getting up in front of us who said, who said, yeah, there was a lot of truth in, in what these, in what the, the characters were saying, where it wasn't there. And I thought that was just, to me, such a defining moment. You know, it's, it's, it's taking a lot of progress and a lot of important, really good messages and distorting them in ways that, that are very us versus them, that are, that are very, in very binary terms. And, and so there really, there is a message that, that boys don't know how to receive and how to respond to. It's too, it's, and there, it really, it can be very detrimental and it's, it sets up a dynamic that I don't think is the right dynamic that we, that we want for boys. We don't want boys going to the other direction and feeling rejected and going online and getting, you know, getting brought in by um, people with ideas and views that are misogynistic. We don't want that for our boys. No, none of us do. And I suppose the truth really is, is that we want boys to engage in these conversations about masculinity. We don't want them to shy away from having these conversations or asking questions or for their views to be challenged. Absolutely, Bruce. Absolutely. And more than ever, I really feel like we really need to create spaces. And I try to do this all the time with my students, create spaces where there can be conversations, where there's, where there is a real effort to show respect and listening. And there are a lot of questions boys have that I think I'm a big believer. There are no bad questions. Absolutely. I would agree. And it strikes me again, that boys schools can play a role here, Andrew, to set up opportunities for really authentic conversations about masculinity. In your book, Andrew, you talk about a crisis of masculinity, and I want to explore with you this concept of toxic masculinity, which in many ways I believe is not a helpful term. There are most definitely toxic and problematic behaviors, but that term in particular seems limiting in understanding the challenges boys face in navigating new views of masculinity. Um, well, you, you definitely, Bruce, you echo some of the feelings I have. I think it's, I think it's um, overused and, and in the course of it often being, being overused, it's, it's often said very, very dismissively and, and with these huge brushstrokes, which ultimately end up really, um, I hate to use this word, but they really do cancel out um, any, any real productive conversation or understanding of certain kinds of um, behaviors. Because as I write in the book, um, and I agree with what you said, as I write in the book, you know, the toxicity in masculinity often is, is not, is not these huge brushstrokes of, of a whole person. Often it's behaviors. And, and because a lot of the toxic behaviors that we accuse, um, especially boys of not, not as much men, I do think that, that men can kind of veer into more kind of you know, broader ways of thinking about masculinity that across the board can be tainted. But I think with boys who are trying to figure it out and are wrestling, especially today, with a lot of complexity that is well beyond their understanding or grasp, especially as their brains are still developing, um, I think that we should be wary if we want to have conversations um, that are really fair and productive um, and thoughtful. I really do think we should stay away from that kind of broad stroke label 
that really just shuts everything down because it, because it, it really, if you're a thoughtful person and you understand the complexity um, of these kinds of conversations and what's really involved in certain behaviors and why they exist, then that's a quick way to shut something down. That's a really quick way to just say, I don't, I really don't want to have this conversation. It's not something I'm not invested in, in really having this discourse. Then sure, just say this behavior is toxic, that behavior is toxic. And then you're writing off, you know, groups of people and their behaviors. And I, I really wish we could bring the same curiosity. Um, and, and that's a really important word here, Bruce, is the curiosity. And as educators, we need to be living in the realm of curiosity at all times. I really think we need to bring a lot more curiosity um, and empathy and tolerance into conversations and, and, and encouraging these traits in the conversations that we have with our students and that, our, and that we, we really foster among them. But what we're not saying, are we, is that we're not going to have the difficult conversations with boys because I think there are definitely problematic ways boys are engaging the, with the world and, and these need to be challenged. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the point I guess I'm making when we talk about this using this toxicity is that, you know, there, there's, that's a loaded enough term now that even boys, you know, boys have heard that and, and boys have heard that and they know what that means. Um, and, and so it, 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 you know, it, it put, makes them very defensive. And so, and yes, I absolutely agree that there are a lot of ways um, that boys are wrestling with contemporary masculinity that that can be very unproductive and that at times can be toxic and that can be very dangerous for other people as well as for themselves. Absolutely. My point is that there is a lot of complexity here and it, these are conversations we should be having. We shouldn't be sidestepping them because they're complex. You know, as educators, that is, I, I really do believe as an educator, that is our, my and our job is that we need to lean into the complexity and really parse things out. But, you know, you do that by having conversations where there, where there are questions, there is curiosity, and there is tolerance, there is listening, there's empathy, there's respect. And yes, there abs these are absolutely conversations we can and should be having with boys. Absolutely. Because, and, and again, let me just make this crystal clear. In no way I'm, am I saying that normative traditional masculinity doesn't at times encourage, again, I hate to use this word, but toxic behaviors because it does. It does, it does often produce ways of seeing the world and ways of behaving that are not productive and that are not healthy for other people or for the person doing it. All I'm saying is that we should not discount individual behaviors across the board as being the sign of, of a person whose, whose identity is toxic. What's very interesting for me, Andrew, and I want to highlight what you mentioned now, is that these traditional masculine ways of being not only impact others, but many of them are very harmful for the boys themselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the ripple effects of, of a lot of traditional or normative masculine behavior is something that just about all boys really kind of are, are really the inheritors of. And a lot of them aren't even aware of it. And I talk about this in the book in the chapter about boys, which is that even a lot of 
very thoughtful, very sensitive boys and young men who are very intentional about their gender behavior. Really fantastic. They've done a lot of hard inner work. And yet they are still the inheritors of certain ways of being a male that are really not serving them or the rest of us. So one of these ways that can be really destructive to them as individuals is that a lot of boys and men, regardless of, of how um, thoughtful and um, um, intentional their gender identity is, a lot of them still buy into this notion that if they come up against problems, they need to be handling it on their own. That is ubiquitous. Across the board, no matter how, um, uh, no matter how, um, when it comes to gender identity, no matter how thoughtful or, or, or oblivious that a lot of boys can be to their gender identity, almost the large proportion of boys still suffer from this idea of, if I am a boy, I need to be doing, handling my problems on my own. This is, this is the way I become a competent man. And this is something I write about, and I try to deal with the complexity of this in the chapter about boys called Boys to Men. Because there are a lot of extremely, extremely well-intentioned parents and teachers and coaches, of course, too, who want the best for a lot of, a lot of our boys. But that notion that to be a competent man means that you always have to be able to handle things on your own sets off a whole nother slide of all these other kinds of repercussions and ways of behaving that really don't help boys serve themselves and in turn other people. So many boys I interviewed um, and, that, and, that, and, that, and that show up in that chapter talk about the, the guilt and the shame that they feel over their, you know, their, their ineffectiveness at school, their ineffectiveness, if they're heterosexual, their, their ineffectiveness with girls, their ineffectiveness at, 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 you know, being the kinds of, the kinds of men that they emulate, that they see in these action hero movies that, that are just so common and so pervasive today. You know, they, they feel shame over the fact that they don't have, you know, the kind of buffed, big, you know, biceps and and chest and upper and upper body torsos that these guys see you know that that work out constantly they feel shame over that they feel shame that they don't have control enough of the time in social situations in school at home um and so what happens is that when you've got these boys and young men who feel that they're supposed to be doing these things on their own they either are failing miserably on their own, or as often happened to with a lot of the boys that I interviewed, they may have one friend, occasionally two, but most of the time one guy that they admire who they think has a lot of the right answers. And they often will go to this one friend. And in the book, I call it targeted transparency, where they will pick one thing, and a lot of men do this too. There's one thing that they feel comfortable enough sharing with an into, a guy who's a friend that they're close to. And they won't share all of it, but they'll share the things that they feel like they won't be rejected for sharing this because this is kind of a, you know, something that a lot of guys can deal with. So for instance, in the book, one of the things that the boys felt comfortable sharing might be something, if there's a guy that they were really close to, well, I'm having this problem with this girl. 
or I'm struggling in this one class, this teacher's really giving me a hard time. But what they often wouldn't do was talk about the emotional part of that. What they would do is talk about the facts. And what they often got in return were solutions and advice. And so a lot of these boys were left with some kind of practical solutions. And, and again, they're get, often getting it from a friend their age, so it's not often the best solutions. And they were left with feeling like, okay, so I have all of these feelings surrounding this. And so what do I do with this? Some of the boys, if they were lucky, would do what a lot of us do, you know, and men still do, which is they would go to either girlfriends or girls who were friends, and maybe they would go to them. And of course, we know this because a lot of us as men go to our wives and they're our real confidants if we have wives. Um, but these boys were, 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 were really feeling like, I have to do this myself. Maybe I've got one friend, but I can't go to my parents because my parents are always telling me, especially my fathers, you need to figure this out on your own. And so a lot of the anxiety and depression that is occurring amongst a lot of boys comes because they feel like they're, like they're failures if they don't do these things themselves. And again, if they do reach out, it's this targeted transparency. It's maybe one or two things they might be willing to share. They might get a little practical advice, but they're still left holding the bag a lot of times with the feelings surrounding that because they're not getting the, the emotional support that they really need. And so that's where a lot of the anxiety and depression really starts to manifest. As you're talking, Andrew, I'm struck again about the role of boys' schools and and the part that they can play in the lives of young men and boys. You know, the article you wrote recently for the New York Times, which talks about building emotional safety nets for men, reminded me that boys' schools need to strive to become communities where boys can find this emotional safety. Absolutely. And and I do have to say, Bruce, this is, you know, if there's, this is probably, if not one of, this is probably the biggest crusade after writing this book that I, that I really am extremely passionate about and that I, re, I very much feel that schools need to lean into this. A lot of times what I've noticed that a lot of boys' schools do, and it's extremely well-intentioned, is that the, there'll be conversations once a week, um, usually about topics that a lot of extremely well-intentioned teachers and administrators think that the boys should really be talking about. So they, for instance, they, you know, they might, they might bring up things, um, that, that they think that the boys, you know, really need to be thinking about, um, at, you know, at, at, uh, I remember a lot of the Australian schools, um, there's the pastoral class that the boys would have. And in some of the pastoral, um, classes, they were, you know, reading literature and talking about the literature, um, in, in, in a lot of the, the States, they'll, they'll bring up these topics, you know, maybe it has to do with Black Lives Matter. Maybe it has to do with Me Too. Maybe it has to do with um, stress. These are all extremely important topics and all topics I personally feel that deserve a place at the table, absolutely. But one of the things that I feel like that is a little bit too much for a lot of schools or they think is too much for them is talking about is number one, talking about the things that really matter to the boys, or at least talking about the perspectives that are important to the boys. Because a lot of times in the conversations, very well intentionally, um, a lot of um, educators and administrators will want there to be a certain perspective that they want the boys to have on certain topics. 
And that I completely get, believe me. As an educator, as a parent, I completely, completely understand that. The problem with that is that the boys see through that. And what the boys feel is that's all well and good and you're shoving that down my throat, but I don't feel like I really have a place that I can really air my own thoughts and feelings in this, let alone my questions. And so one of the things I feel like we have to do is create this safe space for boys where when we do have conversations, there needs to be, as I was saying earlier, a place where there is first and foremost curiosity, where there is questioning and questions about questions, and then places of tolerance without judgment or feeling that the boys can't have a certain perspective, because that's the only way we're going to really move things forward. But the other thing that I think is really important, Bruce, is that I think that we really need to teach these boys, you know, in these kinds of uh, either to create the classes or use the ones that already exist to create spaces that are going to emulate what is happening in a lot of men's groups. And in a lot of men's groups, um, you know, around the world now, and they've been big in the States for, you know, off and on for 20 or 30 years, but they're really kind of taking on a new life for us again which I'm glad to see. What happens in a lot of these men's groups is that you will get um, a circle. And I want to talk in a moment about a program um, that I observed in Chicago called Becoming a Man, BAM, which is, which is in schools and is a great program for this, where boys are sitting in circles. And the facilitator, whoever the adult is that's leading this, has the boys going through a very prescribed way of beginning where they go around the circle and they've got to take turns. And in programs like Becoming a Man, which, which, which occurs in a lot of Chicago public schools, um, they'll start out talking about how are you doing physically? And the boys have to talk about how they're feeling physically. How are you doing mentally? How, where, what space are you in mentally? Where are you spiritually? And the boys have learned early in, in, the, in the course of the course what all these things mean so they know how to answer them. How are you doing academically? How are you really doing academically? And so these are all the, the fronts that they're hitting, are all, the, poor, all, are all the, the aspects of these boys' lives. And one of the things that happens is that as these boys sit in this circle, is that they really have to, they have to really pony up honest answers. They can't, they can't sit there and respond with these monosyllabic answers, fine, or good, or great, or not, or, you know, or bad. They have to really unpack it a little bit more. The facilitator leans into them to do that. But then what happens is that when you create this container, and that's what in a lot of men's groups they call it, which I think is a great word, when you create this safe space or this container, the other, some of the, sometimes the other boys in the group will kind of support them and encourage them. Well, come on, you know, you know, give us a little bit more than just that one word answer. That alone is a really important dynamic right there, which I'll get to in just a second. But what happens is that these boys are learning how to access and process and articulate their deeper emotional lives. They're learning to get beyond beyond a lot of the things that are sanctioned in our culture, right? The frustration and the anger. They're learning to get to the tails at the core of a lot of their feelings and getting away from just the sanctioned behaviors that are acceptable. They're getting to the deeper to, to the deeper roots of what it is that they really feel. And you know, there's just study after, st as I write in the book, in my book, there's study after study after study 
that shows. And I, in that New York Times article you referenced, uh, men and their needs for emotional safety nets, I mentioned it too. There's just studies galore that show when humans learn how to access and process and learn how to articulate their deeper feelings, then that leads, of course, to, you know, to mental health. So right off the bat, there's, that's a huge part of it right there. These boys are learning to do something that really nobody else is teaching them if they're not in therapy. And let's be real. How many boys are in therapy? So the other thing that happens, and I talk about this in the book and in that article you referenced, is that it's breaking a dynamic that occurs in a lot of boys' circle of friends. When a lot of boys, and this is true for men, hang out together, they do this kind of one-upsmanship. It's all, it's all in good fun. It's all very playful. You know, one of the expressions in the States that guys will use is, I'm just busting your chops. I'm just joking around, giving you a hard time. This is how we bond. This is how we, you know, this is how we talk with each other. But what really happens is that over the long period of time, when boys are socialized to think that this is the way they're going to be in groups of friends, is that what that does on a deeper level is what it's doing is it's making one guy look better, have higher status at that moment in the group at the expense of the other guy who he's belittling. And then it's really a smokescreen just constantly say, I'm just busting your chops. I'm, we're just, you know, we're just, you know, having a good time here. What that does is that feeds into a more subtle form of competition. I'm going to get to you before you can get to me. And it just, it kind of elevates the status, at least momentarily in the group. Over the long period of time, that kind of very subtle but insidious form of competition undermines trust because you're not going to go into a group where your friends are going to rag on you for the smallest misstep of, of, of you know, something you say or do that makes you look less, you know, less like one of the guys, i.e. hypermasculine. You're not going to come into a group like that and suddenly say, hey, guys, you know what? I'm really sad today because my parents are arguing again at home and I'm really scared as hell that they're going to get divorced. You're not going to come into a group like that and say something like that. But that need is still there. So what are you going to do with it? Well, if you've been told all along, you know, man up and handle things on your own, you're just going to struggle with that. You're going to swallow back that deeper sadness, that deeper fear, and it's going to fester. It's going to create anxiety. It could, it could also create, of course, depression. And so we are basically, it's a dynamic that discourages trusting in other guys. And this is why so many boys and men that I interviewed in the book across the board, bros, talked, as I said earlier, about going to girls and women to be their confidants. What happens in a circle is that when you've got this circle of boys and they're learning to open up in front of each other, it's breaking down that wall of trust. It's creating a new container where in addition to learning to access and process and articulate their deeper emotional lives, they're learning to do it and do it in front of other boys and gain something they never had, which is a, a container of trust with other males. That is hugely powerful. Incredibly powerful for sure. But I'm also convinced that the impact goes beyond those containers, doesn't it? Um, as soon as these young men and boys learn what it means to be emotionally transparent and as they are able to diminish their sense of isolation, surely that has an impact for their emotional lives beyond these groups as they relate to the other people in their lives. Oh, absolutely. It's not a big stretch to say, what are the other ways that these boys 
are going outside of this classroom, outside of this container, and taking what they're learning and practicing it. Definitely something, Andrew, for boys' schools to consider. You know, in this conversation, we've spoken a fair bit about problematic expressions of masculinity, but the gist of your book is really that you paint a picture of and promote a new masculinity. You you speak of courage, strength, and resiliency as skills boys need to thrive in this world. And isn't that what all educators of boys want, for the boys in their care to thrive for themselves, but also so that they can make an impact beyond themselves in their communities or wherever they might find themselves. And that's why, Andrew, I'd like us to wrap up our conversation today by looking at what this new masculinity means and and how we help boys express the full range of their humanity. Yeah, that's really what it's about, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And, and you're right. I mean, that is what that's exactly what, what my book is about. You know, I think that, um, you know, going the, the, for me, the primary thing goes back to honestly, Bruce, what we were just talking about, you know, it's, it's creating a space for boys and boys do do, you know, boys do need this creating a safe space for boys where they can start out learning in small ways that feel safe to them, that they can learn to access and process you know, their deeper emotional lives. There is so little, um, there's so little in our culture that sends them the message that, that this is part of what it means to be a competent man. So much of what these boys are taught about being a competent man is, is based on their gender identity. And fortunately for girls and women, they don't have that same yoke. They're not told you have to be this in order to be a competent girl or woman. But with boys, they still are yoked with that. And part of the problem, too, is that we still have not created this new masculinity where competency for being a man includes being empathetic, being compassionate, being a good communicator, being a good collaborator. And yet these are all of the tools. This is part of the toolkit that is now required to succeed in classrooms and in the workplace. And so we have to start from a place of how do we give boys not only the skills that they need to thrive and survive, but give boys the skills that will help them deal with a lot of the inner angst that they are experiencing every much as girls are. The difference is that boys are just taught to hide it better. And they're, and they're taught to suck it up and deal with it on their own. There have been a lot of studies, and I mentioned this in the book, new battery of studies that are showing that when you use a diagnostic scale that gauges the way the depression manifests more so in boys and men, and you include that scale with the traditional one that's used, that the, 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 the gap in depression between men and women, get the gap is erased, and there's almost identical numbers and percentages of depression. And even though they haven't done the same thing with anxiety, I, I can tell you just from interviewing boys throughout the course of my book, the anxiety is, is just as strong for boys as it is for girls. The difference is that they're, they're, they, they are taught that they need to do a better job of keeping it under wraps. And I'm not saying, you know, that boys shouldn't taught, you know, to learn how to cope with things. But I think that, you know, the way that we raise girls now, 
with the full range of embracing any or all parts of their identity that might have been considered slightly masculine in the past, that's all part of it. I just think we need to give boys the same wide berth in terms of determining what it means for them to be a man. And I think that having these kinds of little classes is a really, really good way to start to give them access to the full range of their, of their humanity. Thank you, Andrew, for this conversation and for your book, Better Boys, Better Men. I really believe that it's a gift for parents and educators of boys. It's thoughtful, it's challenging, and really, really practical. And I love the narrative arc that you've woven uh, into it. It's very easy to read. Um, there's so much in your book, I believe, that'll help boys' schools to engage with boys and help them to thrive and express the full range of their humanity. Thank you for the time you've spent with us today uh, talking about this important topic. And I must say, I think we've we've probably only touched the tip of the iceberg. We have. Yes, it is. Very much, Bruce. <laughs> and so I'd like to encourage people to dive into your book and read more for themselves. I know what you write will help educators of boys understand more keenly how to support the boys in their care. I hope so. That, that's why I did it. Thank you, Bruce. It's been an honor and a joy. Thank you so much. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this conversation. Andrew's book, Better Boys, Better Men, can be found online and in good bookstores everywhere. Grab a copy and let us know what you think. Here at the IBSC, we are mindful of the fact that teaching in schools everywhere remains a challenge. So we wish you all strength and health as you continue to navigate the challenges of the pandemic. Until our next episode, Keep safe and well.